Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And listen, we could just be days away from learning whether Donald Trump, a former president of the United States, will face criminal charges over the payment of hush money to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Now, let's be clear. This is far from a done deal. Until you actually see the indictment, the charges, a lot can happen between now and even the potential for that happening. But sources are telling CNN that New York City, state and federal law enforcement agencies have been meeting all week long to prepare for the possibility of an indictment and what would be a stunning surrender of a former president of this country. With all that with entail, you're talking about fingerprinting, mugshots and arraignment, I mean, a perp walk of a former president of the United States. One of his own attorneys, Joe Tacopina, telling the New York Daily News that if Trump is indicted, he won't refuse to surrender, quote, there won't be a standoff at Mar-a-Lago, unquote. Got a lot more on this in just a moment. Plus, the story of a wrongly convicted man sentenced to this number is shocking. 400 years behind bars. Now, after 34 years in prison, he's been exonerated and finally able to walk free. him hugging his mother. Sidney Holmes says he never lost hope, and he's here with us tonight. And one Ohio school district is switching to a four-day week. Kids may think it's great news, but is it great news for their parents? I'll talk to superintendent who came up with that very plan. I said a lot to talk about tonight, and here with me now, CNN law enforcement expert John Miller, also John Hart, who was a communications director for Senator Tom Coburn, Democratic strategist Maria Cardona, national security attorney Bradley Moss, and Tia Mitchell of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm glad you're all here. We've got really a full house. Let me begin with the reporting from you, John Miller, over there, because, look, this is pretty significant. The idea of the coordination the choreography of trying to figure out what to do with an otherwise routine set of events, right? The idea of an arraignment or someone turning themselves in. But you add to this, it's former POTUS. Tell me what's going on. So, Laura, this is unprecedented, which is why this week leading up to today, there's been a number of meetings for planning on the idea that if this happens, it will be different than the way they've done it ever before, meaning... If, if you get a criminal indictment on a felony against Donald Trump, a former president, that means you've got a prisoner who's arriving in a motorcade with a security cordon escorted by armed Secret Service agents where you're going to have to close off Hogan Place, you know, walk him into the district attorney's lobby. And then while his Secret Service agents stand by, you'd have to go through that process of getting his fingerprints, shooting his mug shots and then getting he and his lawyers, uh, Joe Tacopina and others, you know, a conference room to wait while 
they arrange an arrangement, an arraignment judge who's going to examine the question of bail, which, of course, you know, in the case, if he were indicted, he would be released on his own recognizance. Uh, but nobody's ever done that with a former president of the United States before. And they're talking about, will there be a throng of media? Sure, there would be. Would there be demonstrators? That's possible. Would there be counter demonstrators? And that's why they've been sitting around trying to figure out we need contingency on contingency on contingency. So thinking about all that and just the idea of the choreography of that, John, I mean, are, are you saying the reporting or the sources are saying there actually is perhaps a date in mind or this is the potential? If this should happen, they have to have a plan in place because once a decision is made, they'll have to move pretty quickly. That's not when you start the planning of all you just described. So that's right about the planning. It's the moving part that's a little mysterious. Um, you know, normally, nothing's normal here, Laura. But no, no, nothing. Normally, and I, and I know I'm talking to a former federal prosecutor, normally you would get the indictment. You might, you might get the indictment and have it sealed. Uh, you might arrange a surrender date and then unseal the indictment at the arraignment, enter a plea. Uh, but in this case, you've got a defendant who's in another state. That's Florida. It's not a federal charge. It's a state charge in New York State, if in fact the charge were to be brought. Um, and then, you know, you could announce the indictment. You could make the arrangement with his lawyers to come up on surrender on a date that might not be the same day they announce the indictment. Right. It could be a week or two out. So this week we're going to be watching really carefully. Um, you know, there may be witnesses coming in on Monday, uh, but that indictment could happen Tuesday. It could happen Wednesday. So uh, we're rounding third base towards home here. And as you pointed out, Laura, and we have to keep saying this, there's 23 people on a grand jury. You need at least 12 to secure an indictment. And it is entirely possible in this case, which is unusual, right. uh, that they might vote the other way. Although, you know better than me, usually a prosecutor walks out of a grand jury with what a prosecutor came in looking for. I mean, that's the old indictment of a ham sandwich adage, is it not? I'm going to turn to my panel. The only thing is, John's right about the minimum number of people. But if you have like 12 out of 23 who are willing to go forward on a charge, that's not a home run. I don't care if you're rounding third base or it's out of the park. It's not a sure thing. But just to think about this that we're talking about, I mean, John, this is a former president of the United States. And as much of a norm buster as he was known to be, this is now completely uncharted territory. Right. A possible, again, perp walk for a president right. of the United States who still claims that he should be the president of the United States? I mean, this is right. pretty stunning. Well, let's, let's step back and get perspective on this, because, Laura, this is happening at a time when a majority of Republican voters actually want to move on from Trump. People forget that in 2016, he only got 45 percent of the vote. Fifty-five percent wanted somebody else. So we, if this happens, if this indictment happens, it's going to make it harder for someone like a Nikki Haley to break through or others who don't believe in appeasement, who believe that economic freedom is the best way to advance uh, people up the economic ladder, help the environment, do everything good that we want to do as a country. Harder to break through. It's almost harder to break through if he does get yes, invited. Yes, because he will be a martyr. This will be a political stimulus plan for Donald Trump. If okay. he's indicted, if he's indicted over, and, and think about the nature of the offenses. We're talking about the rule of law. The threat to the rule of law isn't, they're not, it's not hush payments to Stormy Daniels. It's a, it's a former president who believes in the rule of rulers. The rule of rulers is the opposite of the rule of law. And so we're, we're going to take an, an issue that, yes, you shouldn't be held above the law. 
he should be held accountable. But in the scheme of things, what he did wrong in in denying <laughs> that well, he lost the election hush is a are much not, bigger issue. Me, okay, yeah, but hush payments in and of themselves are not illegal. However, a falsifying a business record, a misdemeanor right. in connection with a um, commission of another crime can be a felony. Right. But your point's not lost in the idea of this being a part of a campaign. I mean, can, you can imagine a mugshot of a former president who once chanted, lock her up, yes. calling about political witch hunts? Yes, Laura, if this happens for Donald Trump, this is going to be a gift for him, I believe, politically, at least mm. in the Republican primary process. Because I actually don't agree that the majority of Republican voters have moved on from Trump because he still tops all, the, all of the polls right now. But if this happens for him, let's remember... Donald Trump's focus has always been victimhood and has always been, you know, that he is being attacked, the witch hunt, right? It's always been about victimhood and vengeance against him. So if this happens, this is going to be a clarion call to the MAGA extremist base that will still do anything for him and still believes that he should be president today. But Brad, you're, and, and on that point, yeah. me, your, your point though, Brad, I mean, I, I, I feel you're nodding. The lawyer in me is nodding <laughs> back. And going, we're like, yeah. we're like yeah. or having like messaging to each other. Um, and the idea of there's the political reaction to it. And then there's the, is that the consideration if someone breaks the law? Yeah, and that can't be the consideration of any prosecutor either way, whether it be a Republican or Democrat. If a law was broken, if there is a case to be brought Mm -hmm. in accordance with normal procedure, you bring the case. And here's the concern I have, and John, going to the point you had made earlier. Is this really, you know, for rule law, what we're going to do, bring a charge based on hush money? Can I get a list somewhere of all the different rules and laws and things that Donald Trump can violate, that he can break, (laughs) that are just not worth it for him? Because I keep hearing that. Oh, are we really going to do this because of Stormy Daniels? Are we really going to do this in Fulton County because of a phone call? Do any laws apply to this man, or is right. he just exempt from well, the whole story? Well, you're, you're from Georgia, yeah. Atlanta, Georgia Constitution. Yeah. There is something in the orbit <laughs> about law breaking. There is, and, and I mean, that's the that's the unique position these elected prosecutors are put in because at the end of the day, it is a legal decision they're making, but it also you can't remove the politics no, from it, that's and right. so people are still going to say this is nothing new. We've known about Stormy Daniels since 2016. It's seven years later, and mm-hmm. now we're thinking about bringing charges about it. So, and I'm not saying that means don't do it, but to me, that's part of the planning too. You know, that prosecutor is having to get get his talking points together. Mm-hmm. Should he bring charges? How is he going to justify these charges? Justify the investigation and say this is why we think. Mm-hmm. Whatever step they take, whether it's to bring charges or not to bring charges, either way, he's going to have to explain that to the public. And either way, Trump's people are going to um, find a way to... To the voters, absolutely. Let me me bring in John Miller here, because I want to bring him back in the conversation as well, because, I mean, the the planning of this, we're talking about the politics and the idea of, obviously, if a law is violated, we remember that phrase, no one is above the law, the Manhattan DA looking into this issue. Um, But in terms of the planning for... Protests. I mean, the planning of if this is an opportunity for somebody who's declared that he wants to run again, I can imagine him on the courthouse steps holding a press conference. And there's considerations at that point in time in terms of security for a former president in the midst of all of this. What are they saying? That's exactly what they're saying, which is, you know, while they don't have a time and a date for this yet, if this actually happens... Uh, what do you do if Donald Trump wants to walk? And this is 
not counterintuitive that Donald Trump wants to walk out the front door of the courthouse mm -hmm. and hold forth on the steps with his lawyers about a witch hunt. I'm the victim of a blackmail plot by a porn star. And, mm -hmm. you know, I am now being persecuted for being, you know, the victim in a shakedown. And this is political. And I mean, you can you can hear the talking points spilling out. But again, for police with protesters, counter protesters, supporters, um, you know, the Proud Boys and, you know, the the conspiracy theorists, there's layers and layers of things to consider because you still have a former president who is a lawful protectee of the Secret Service. A very important point, and if he were to hold some sort of press conference, it's not going to be a comment confined to the Manhattan DA's office. What, not with Mar-a-Lago subpoenas being issued, Fannie Willis in Fulton County, just to name a few, not to mention the Department of Justice and Jack Smith. It's potential for a lot happening here. Thank you all, everyone. Let's stick around. When we come back, the potential of a four-day school week. It might sound like a dream come true to kids, certainly my children, but there's more to it. The school superintendent who came up with the plan is going to do some explaining as to the why next. A school district in Ohio is adopting a new learning approach for the upcoming school year. It's a four-day in-person school week. Superintendent there is working to fix a problem that the districts are seeing across this nation. It's called teacher burnout. And under the new policy, students will go to school Tuesday through Friday, giving their teachers a day to prepare for the week ahead. Joining me now is superintendent of the school district in North College Hill, Ohio, Eugene Blaylock. I'm glad that you're here. Thank you, Eugene, for joining us today. I got to tell you, my kids would be thrilled, but me as mommy, thinking about my traditional five-day-a-week five work week, I wonder what the motivation here, the idea of burnout, obviously a significant driving force. What is your goal? Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Ms. Coates. Uh, for us, it has to do actually with student achievement. What we start seeing is our teachers are struggling, uh, first and foremost, because uh, high absenteeism, and we can't find subs. So it's tough. We're a small district. We're about 1,400 students, and uh, it's tough to find subs for our teachers. And what we're finding is our teachers, well, what, what we were finding was our teachers were losing their plan bail because they had the internal. You know, unlike, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you can just keep going. No. We have a situation where we have students and we have to have adults to cover those classes. So teachers give up their plan bill and they don't get a plan bill. And it's almost like uh, somebody equated it to being on like a hamster wheel. You never get a chance to get off that hamster wheel. And it's a constant go, go, go. And our teachers, we realize we're truly struggling with uh, teacher burnout. I mean, you can see it in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And we believe that a five day schedule a five-day teacher schedule uh, will allow our teachers the opportunity to properly and adequately plan for our students. Real quick, define this term you're using, plan bail. What does this mean? Okay. So basically, uh, in education, every teacher has basically a plan bail. So you work, say, in a, in a seven-bail uh, school, uh, seven-bail schedule, you work six bills, and then one bill you have opportunity to plan and prepare for your students. 
what we're finding is our teachers are not having an opportunity to plan. Uh, when we discussed this prior to COVID, we were doing two hours basically uh, once a month and we were planning. Uh, in Ohio, the state of Ohio has a state report card and we were able to show that if teachers had adequate, adequate time to plan, that our students were making tremendous growth. We don't judge students on achievement per se, but we look at individual students. So in North College Hill, we say every student every day. And it's important for us because we work with a with what some might call an at-risk group we call at-promise. And we have to customize plans for them. So just like you look at an athlete, you know, we're now in March Madness. You know, uh, playing the game is easy. You know, teaching, standing in front of the kids, that's, that's the easy part. The hard part is is planning, is looking at data and using data to, to drive instruction. And that's where our teachers were struggling at. And we asked the teachers what they needed. And you know what? It wasn't money. It was time. They wanted well, adequate you, time to plan. I understand. I mean, I, I remember distance learning and all the parents across the nation during the height of the pandemic praising um, in ways they likely should have done for years to come, yes, the teachers ma'am. for what they have done. But speaking of the parents in particular, you know, mm-hmm. most parents, they're working a full week, a full job yes. week. What about their ability to have care for their children on the days that they are working? They can't then turn to their employer and say, look, my kids have a four day work week. Now I get a day yes. off, too. What are you going to do to help them? OK, for us, this is a K through 12 program, and it's not an off day for anyone in the district. So our certified teachers, they will be working and they will be planning. When we started this conversation, we looked at barriers. The two barriers that jumped out at us was number one, food, and number two, child care. So let me say the pandemic taught us at least one thing, that we can do things differently. And one of those things was uh, as far as supporting our, our families with meals. So two students will have the opportunity to come up to the building to pick up meals, or we'll be sending those meals home. We're working that out with our food service uh, provider. Now, as far as uh, family support, that was another biggie. For us, we are going to provide limited support for K through eight students and our most vulnerable students. So when I said that uh, everyone will be working, so although our certified teachers they will be planning our paraprofessionals, our educational aides, some of the most important individuals that we have in our building who works closely with the students and the teachers every day. They will be here to help supervise and support those families and those students when they come in. Mm. Another thing, this is not like uh, remote learning per se. What we're going to do, we're not asking parents to provide any direct instruction. That, that day when students are at home, so on that Monday when students are at home, that will be what we call a spiral review. That will be opportunity for students to practice. And it's also will be opportunity for students to demonstrate to their teachers exactly what they know. Another thing that's a beautiful, that I love about my community, North College Hill, is that, you know, we're a small, close-knit community, family-oriented. And we've already had child care providers reach out to us and say, hey, what can we do to help? What can wow. we do to support families and the students? And they're sending information out. Uh, at, last week when it was approved and I sent out my information, they were right behind me sending things out to parents saying, hey, That's incredible. Uh, we're here for you. We have waivers and we're here to uh, help you and support you. 
Eugene Blaylock, thank you for helping us understand it better. You certainly do make the case. I wonder if it's going to catch on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, back now with me, my panel, and joining us, Elahe Azadi, also from the Washington Post. I want to know what you guys think. First of all, this is not the only place that this is happening in terms of even the thought of having a four-day work week. Right. You've got Texas, more than 40 districts there have already made this switch, by the way. Missouri, where one and four are already operating on a, on a four-day-a-week plan. Louisiana, um, the Grant Paris School Board, Montana, Nebraska. This is catching on. I don't know that parents are thrilled <laughs> about it because sometimes I'll be real with you. I, I, I need you to go to school. Right. I need you to go to school. Okay. What do you say to this? I think it's something that when I, when I looked at it, I was like, this, this is interesting. It's out of the box thinking. Now, I agree with you. We have to make sure that it works for parents. I'm lucky that I can work from home whenever I need to. My husband can work from home whenever he needs to. But I know that not every parent is like that. But I will also say... I saw with my own kids and and kids of of my friends, there was burnout for them as well. There has been burnout for them. And I've talked to a lot of teachers that I know, and the burnout is absolutely real. And so I think to get to that kind of solution, you need to be creative. And I am interested to see what kinds of results we're going to see, both from this school district as well as the ones that you mentioned I think it could work. We certainly had to do something, though. And like, yeah. I think I think results, but I also think resources. Right. And how do kids on that Monday prove what they know? I'm thinking about technology, for example. It's often incorporated in schools. What do you see? Well, it's interesting because I think the root of this whole conversation around the teachers going four days a week has to do with teacher burnout and teacher shortages. Mm-hmm. So at this time right now where we're talking about, are we going to go into a recession? And in some industries like tech and media, there are lots of layoffs. In other industries, there are huge labor shortages. And one of them is in education, right? And so what I was hearing from the superintendent in part, the big sell here is, look, we don't have enough teachers. We're losing our teachers. We need to make this work more appealing to them. They just came off of the pandemic. Teaching during the pandemic, remote learning was actually really challenging, not for just for parents and students, but for teachers as well. And so hearing that in this sector of education, like, oh, we're going to move to four day a week, even though we're going to have this extra day for planning, which I don't know if you know teachers, I don't know how they fit their planning in to the five days they do already. Um, I wonder if that's also going to be looked at in other sectors and other industries where they're experiencing labor shortages to make it more appealing for them. Well, they are thinking about four day work weeks for for (laughs) the adult workers. And um, we're all all giggling all of a sudden at this prospect. (laughs) Now we actually, I mean, the Washington Post actually had a thing today on this. It would be a little fun to, to see because, look, they have a calculation about how much time you would get back in your life, hours, years of your life back, <laughs> based on how many hours you work on average each day and your age. And so we all gave our age. <laughs> we all gave the number of hours we on an average work. And let me show you what the results are, everyone Ooh, here. Right, okay, yeah. so John, you would get back 7,280 hours. That's, that's 303 days back in your life. If you had a four-day-a-week work week, Maria, you would get 4,160. Wow. That's 173 days back. Um, I think Maria was being modest. I know you work more than that, girl. <laughs> it, it's, it's not election year. There you go. Elahe, yeah, um, you would get 12,168. <laughs> that's 507 wow, days girl. back. Oh there you go. Goodness. Tia, 10,920 hours. <laughs> 
455 days back and you, look at you. well you know <laughs> I'm employed at CNN I had to make that number very high they knew <laughs> they knew that just how hard I worked That's I would right. get 572 That's days right. back of my yes. life if that was the case but think about this would you actually want to work four days a week. Yes. Is there a... <laughs> <laughs> that was our lightning round. She's done. You. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that as we talk about this in totality, it the four-day work week for children only works if it's also incorporated for adults, mm, you know, yeah. because otherwise, even if you're flexible, if you're home trying to work and your kids are saying, Mom, I need yeah. help with this, or Mom, I'm hungry, or, right. or Dad, mm-hmm. um, whatever... Yeah that still is distracting. And so I think there's a whole conversation to be had in America, not just about the educational calendar, but our work calendar overall, because as we mentioned, burnout is not just for the education sector. And it's something that the pandemic has caused us to really rethink work, the work week, the work schedule in ways that could be very constructive. I think for a work-obsessed country, this is something that we need. And I actually don't know if you were to tell me tomorrow that that we're only going to work four days a week. I, I don't even really work five days a week. I work seven days a week, right? I mean, because the, the kind of job that I have is literally 24-7. Yes. Right. And so to say that we're going to only work four days a week, I don't really think that that would be true. But I do think that psychologically, it's something that we all need. We are the most work-obsessed country or one of the most work-obsessed countries in the world. So yeah, and, and the, the nature of work has changed, and it's not going to go back to what it was before the pandemic because of technology, right. because of a lot of reasons. And the best research shows, both in, in regular work for, for adults but also education, it isn't so much a four- or five-day week. It's the, it's the quality of engagement you have, whether it's quality of instruction, ability to focus, this. And so that's, you know, I, yeah, let, let these school districts innovate. Let them experiment. And, yeah. and I think as long exactly. as it's in the best interest of parents and kids first, let them, let them try what's, what's going to work in their situation. Well, and we'll try, see. Let's look at the results. We'll look at the results. Absolutely right. And while we are sort of being tongue-in-cheek about right. the hours and days we would get back in our own lives if we had less work, my next guest spent 34 years of his life, of a 400-year sentence, in jail after he was convicted of armed robbery. Now, Sidney Holmes, Mr. Sidney Holmes, is a free man after prosecutors dismissed those charges against him, and he's gonna join me next. Mr. Sidney Holmes served 34 years of a 400-year sentence for armed robbery. That's right, I said a 400-year sentence. Now, he always maintained his innocence throughout, but he was looking at what amounted to a life sentence until the Innocence Project of Florida got involved. They said there was no physical, no scientific evidence, there was no corroborating witnesses that actually linked Mr. Holmes to the crime. And everyone, he had an alibi. He had an alibi. And on Monday, Do you realize the charges against this man were dismissed? He was 22 years old at the time of his incarceration. Now, here he is at the age of 57, and he's hugging his mother after being released. Mr. Sidney Holmes joins me now, along with Brandon Sheck, who is a staff attorney for the Innocence Project of Florida. Mr. Holmes, I am so grateful that you're here to talk to us today, and I truly Thank you for coming. I, we've all watched this 
video of you hugging your mother. Um, maybe people don't necessarily know your story, and I'm glad you're sharing it today. But you've always maintained your innocence. What has this been like for you to have spent three decades for a crime you did not commit? Well, I never gave a hope. I refused to give a hope. I refused to allow myself to just say, quit. You know, I was 22 years old, and I was sentenced to 400 years in prison. Uh, a state prosecutor told me the only way I would receive, leave prison would be in a body bag, so I refused. I didn't never took that into consideration. How do you I, keep... I said, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Excuse me. I, I, I was never going to accept giving up. The idea that someone would tell that. you that. Yeah, that was gut-wrenching. How did you keep your mind and your faith strong? I mean, that, that would take a toll on the sanest of men. My mother and my father, he unfortunately not here today, but they was the two kept me strong. You know, Brandon, people are hearing about the numbers, and I have been a prosecutor. The idea that someone had 400 years of a sentence for an armed robbery, I mean, homicide convictions result in far, far less how is this even possible that that sentence was handed down? It's unimaginable. Uh, keep in mind that the state of Florida asked for an 825-year sentence, and the trial judge said, well, perhaps that's a little bit too much. And so uh, he handed down a 400-year sentence. Um, essentially, this has to do with back at that time, a life sentence would have made Sydney eligible per for parole after 25 years. A term of year sentence, a 400-year sentence, uh, ensured exactly what Sydney said, that, you know, but for this ultimate relief and vacating the conviction, he would have left prison in a body bag. Even the idea of 25 years for a crime you did not commit is 25 years, obviously, too long. But the idea that there was an opportunity to have a different sentence that could have resulted. How did you two even connect? How did this case get to the attention of the Innocence Project? Sydney, did you reach out in some way? How did this happen? I reached out to the Innocence Project and I went through a process, a screening project, uh, screening process. And uh, then I also reached out to the CRU and they collaborated with the Innocence Project. When you hear about the evidence, and you know what, I, I used the wrong term, because I don't think there was evidence, gentlemen. There was an alibi. There was no direct, even circumstantial, I understand it. And the thing that tied Mr. Holmes to this, Brandon, I understand, was just the color of the car he was driving. I, I must have read that wrong. Did I? No, that's absolutely correct. Um, uh, the perpetrator in the crime uh, was driving a Oldsmobile Cutlass, a brown Oldsmobile Cutlass. And uh, in our post-conviction investigation over the past couple of years, we reached out to an Oldsmobile uh, museum, an Oldsmobile historian, who told us that that was actually the most common car on the streets at the time that this crime happened. And so we're talking about the most common car, the most common color, and that's what connected Sydney to the crime when really there would have been hundreds, presumably, of these exact cars um, on the streets, maybe thousands in, uh, in and around Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
Mr. Holmes, I, what will you do now? I mean, we see the obvious joy that there must be, which is the understatement of a lifetime, to think about what that release must have felt like. But what now? What support do you have in place? And frankly, the lawyer in me wonders, is there a case to be made or a compensation that will be given to you from the state of Florida who convicted the wrong man? Well, I can't comment on that because I really don't know. Well, let me ask your lawyer, really, what is the answer? Does, is, is there a, a plan? What is next for this gentleman? So, so this is the next tragedy and a series of tragedies in this case is that in the state of Florida, Mr. Holmes is actually not eligible under the state statute for compensation because he has a prior record prior to this wrongful conviction that he served 34 years for a crime he didn't commit. Florida is actually that have the only to state in the Why is that at all relevant? If this is the crime that he had a, you know, a, a wrongful conviction for. Why is that possibly the case, Florida? Because that's what the state law says. There's a, pill, a bill going through the legislature right now that would actually change that and make somebody like Sidney and others eligible for compensation. Um, but as of right now in the state of Florida, under our state statute, um, he is not eligible. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. It's another tragedy, like I said, in a series of tragedies in this case. Mr. Sidney Holmes, I'd like to give you the opportunity here that I can't imagine why it was denied for you so long, but the world is, is listening and is watching you, sir. What do you want to say now that you are no longer imprisoned for a crime you did not commit decades later? Well, it's a lot to be said. The system is badly broken. It needs to be fixed. Um, uh, you know, I don't. You know, I, I, I was great with the opportunity I was given to be. We had a great opportunity to be free. Um, in years to come, I hope this tragedy don't happen to another person at the age of 22. But I can't say that the system needs some changing, for this won't happen again. Mr. Sidney Powell, thank you for joining us. Mr. Sidney Holmes, excuse me, sir. Mr. Sidney Holmes, um, I mean no disrespect. Thank you so much for being with us here today. I sincerely appreciate it. And I can't help but wonder, Brandon, how many more gentlemen just like your client are behind bars today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Crossings at the border reaching alarming highs. And I'm not even talking about the southern border that everyone speaks about. And I'll explain next, as soon as I recover from that conversation. I am so sorry that I said the wrong last name, sir, but thank you for joining us here. I really wish you the best. And is, how do people... How, how can people help? I mean, I know there's the idea of compensation and what can be done, but um, I have spoken to my fair share of people with the Innocence Project who have been exonerated. Are there, is, is there going to be help and support for Sydney now to know what the next steps are? Are there resources in place for him somehow to connect him? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Sydney is a client of ours for life, not just for the legal aspects, but also the reentry aspects. 
And so anyway, and we have you know funding and a social worker and all of that. So um, any way that we can be helpful to Sydney and his family moving forward, we absolutely will. I think in the short term, one thing that's really helpful is like Sydney has set up a GoFundMe account, um, and and of course anyone can donate to that. Um, but we are working in the legislature to try to get that bill changed um, that would make Sydney eligible for compensation and others like Sydney. Um, and you know we have our lobbyists and we're. We have our fingers crossed, and, and hopefully it'll, it'll pass this session. Sydney, I hope you are, um, with the GoFundMe, is successful, and I think I hope you stay in touch with the Innocence Project, because I think you are going to be so many people's beacon of hope. Good luck Thank to you. you, sir. You too. Have a blessed I hope you get. The, I hope you now get to live the life that you have always been owed. You take care. Thank you. historic surge at the border, but probably not the one you're thinking about. In the last five months, Border Patrol agents apprehending nearly 2,000 people crossing into the U.S. from Canada into upstate New York and New Hampshire and Vermont. That's nearly as many as the last three fiscal years combined. Now, though the numbers are, of course, much, much smaller than the ones that you see on the southern border, Federal authorities have moved an additional 25 agents to the area. And the region's top Border Patrol agent is warning that traveling there on foot in winter poses significant risk to the lives of already vulnerable people making the journey. I'm back now with our panel. I mean, let's look at those images, Maria, when you see people, the treacherous conditions. We often think about immigration and the southern border. Mm -hmm. It's not the case Mm -hmm. exclusively. Mm -hmm. No, and it's heartbreaking. And I think what this shows is that in addition to making it to the southern border, they are now making, doing everything they can to try to get in from the northern border. That, to me, screams desperation, because that is what makes somebody leave the comfort of their own home, because they are being either threatened, their family is being threatened, or they can't make a living, right? And as an immigrant, I understand this personally, right? And so... To me, what we need to focus on is this has to be taken out of the political arena and Democrats and Republicans have got to fix this. It's got to be a bipartisan fix. You cannot have a knee-jerk reaction, which is what's happening. Republicans always say uh, border enforcement first, border enforcement Mm. first. That does not make any sense. You have to have tough border enforcement. At the same time, you have to consider legal flows of migrants because until we figure out how to accommodate that and we need workers now, we have a huge labor Mm -hmm. shortage, this is never going to be fixed. Yeah, the other backdrop to this is also the stricter border measures that are taking place at the southern Mm -hmm. border implemented by the Biden administration ahead of May when some of these pandemic era immigration um, restrictions are going to be lifted. And if you look at the past couple months, the southern border, the the migrant crossings have greatly dropped, which I know the administration is pointing to as evidence that their approach is working. But as we're saying, the northern border, it's a much smaller number But there is an increase, which, again, speaks to this idea that people are desperate and they are trying to find any means necessary. And at the same time, we have an administration that is moving more to the center after it campaigned on having a more humanitarian approach to immigration. And there are a lot of critics on the left 
who are now saying this policy in the southern border, this mimics and mirrors the Trump administration's approach to immigration. Well, the, the reality is you can't take it out of politics. And the good news, though, is there's a coalition of people that I would call the shining city on, city on a hill coalition. President Kennedy talked about that. President Reagan talked about it, too. And the idea is that we're a city on a hill. If we have walls, we've got to have doors for people with the will and courage to come here legally. So I do think you've, in order to get to the la- to solve the labor problem we have, which is real, mm-hmm. you do have to have a much more uh, systematic border security system where you 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 know bring the people in who want to get here legally, but don't allow a chaotic situation on either the southern or northern border. And it's not it's counterfeit compassion to encourage people to come here illegally when there's no way to handle the inflow of people. How is this being viewed in terms of, I mean, obviously there's been a lot during this administration on the portfolio of the vice president to look into this, to just to try to resolve a very longstanding problem. And there is pushback from both sides of the aisle for different reasons. Um, what do you say? Well, I think it's the partisanship is where the breakdown is mm-hmm. right now as We've mentioned it's very reactive. It's whack-a-mole. Because at the end of the day, it's the southern border. Then the southern border gets more d- difficult. And then people with the means try through the northern border. And then they're going to put resources there and make that more difficult. And then you're going to have people overloading boats trying to get in through, you know, perhaps Florida or other coastlines. And, and until there is comprehensive immigration yes. reform, then we're going to always have this reactionary kind of uh, uh, policy where we're always looking at where are the numbers spiking, increasing right. and decreasing. It also the whole thing of different countries are treated different, their immigrants are treated differently also plays into this. For a long time, the northern border wasn't considered where uh, immigrants from Central and South America uh, or even Mexico gained entry into America. And now we see that starting to shift with people literally catching flights to Canada to then walk over the border into the U.S. And that's part of what's shifting the conversation about the northern border. And the reality is the White House can't fix this. Anything that they do as a Band-Aid. This, this has to come from Congress. And until Republicans understand that it's got to be comprehensive, it can't just be border first, because what does that mean? When they say you have to have a secure border, what does that mean? There will always be ways for people to come in here without documents. You have to have a comprehensive manner to be able to decrease the flows of people who want to come here. Is there the appetite for it? That's the big question, yeah. right? Yeah. At the end of the day, in <laughs> politics, of, of what it means, and of course... You hear it all the time on the campaign trail. Everyone stick around. This topic is going nowhere, as we well know. (laughs) Everyone, though, it is March Madness, and it's getting more wild as the games are going on, with now a number one seed falling to a 16 seed. And the intensity isn't just happening on the men's side, everyone. We've got updates on the ladies next. Well, tonight, a March Madness major upset. 16th seed Philly Dickinson University beating number one Purdue by a score of 63 to 58. It is only the second time in NCAA men's tournament history that a number 16 team has defeated a number one seed. And let's not forget about the women. Today is the first day of round one of the women's team. So let's look at the number one seeds in the women's NCAA tournament. They are South Carolina, Virginia Tech, Stanford, 
and Indiana. And there was an upset today, actually, in the women's Creighton-Mississippi State game. 11th seed Mississippi State beating 6th seed Creighton. The final score, 81-66. to So you got to stay tuned and watching. More anxiety today as well at the banks and in the markets. When will the rocky ride end for all this? We're going to talk about it next. The stock market taking a tumble today as uncertainty over the banking system is continuing, even after the dramatic rescues of this week. It began a week ago. Can you believe it already? As the government was forced to step in after Silicon Valley Bank fell victim to a bank run, with at least three other banks needing intervention in the days since. On Thursday, First Republic Bank securing a $30 billion, with a B, $30 billion lifeline from a group of America's largest banks. So why does it feel like everyone is now waiting for the next, well, banking shoe to drop? Joining me now, John Hart, former communications director for Senator Tom Coburn, CNN political commentator Karen Finney, national security attorney Bradley Moss, and Republican strategist Rena Shaw. You know, it's true. Many people have been looking at this and thinking, well, how many others are going to fall in line? Is this the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning as it comes to the worries surrounding this issue? What do you yeah. think? I was on the Hill with uh, two members of Congress in 2008, 2009, and this is tough, but it's nothing like that time. So we do need to remember that and keep that in perspective. But I think pulling back here, what I see to be hugely problematic is the fact that there's such a lack of competition between these big banks. And when you look at what's to come, it's it's looking at other banks that are part of the top 20 biggest banks in this country and seeing how they act just like SVB. SB, SVB was trying to act like a regional bank, yet it had these big overblown expectations and plans for itself. So what happened here, I think, is less about culture and the very fact that these big banks behave recklessly, their executives behave recklessly, and they don't believe that the regulators can do anything to them because Another thing that's funny, former Congressman Barney Frank now sits on the board of a very large bank. So the regulators are not going to be regulating for very long because they're going to join them. Uh, I think there's a really serious um, concern about how you move forward when there are going to be deleterious effects on housing. You know, we need to talk about getting more liquidity into the mortgage market. I think that could be a good fix to begin with. It's going to be interesting to see next week, you know, we're supposed to, uh, the Fed is supposed to raise interest rates. Do they continue? We're talking about how the raising of in, the raising of interest rates, in addition to the Fed, not so much doing its job with regard to S. S you know, I know. <laughs> you know. There's SBB yeah. and there's SBF, and we're totally different. And then, and there's, um, but you know, I mean, I think there's a real question: Do they do they raise it as much as folks have been anticipating, and does that settle the market? If they don't do that much, does that create panic or concern, particularly given what we saw with Credit Suisse? And the other concerns with other banks and sort of everybody trying to say, nothing to see here, it's all calm. How does the Fed play into that? It'll be interesting to see, you know, we just got this report just before we're coming on from ABC News that there were some SVB execs who apparently were dumping stock in the days leading up to the collapse. How much of the investigation, both the the Justice Department, but also Congress, will look into the extent to which some of these executives, kind of going to your point, more or less abuse their power and abuse the system when there was a gap in regulatory oversight and did it to their own personal benefit? We saw that in 2008, and almost nothing happened to any of those individuals. They got great, you know, golden parachutes. They went off and did something else without any shame 
or accountability. Will we see that again? Because remember, there were a lot of political implications that came out of how that crisis was handled. Both on the left, you think of Occupy Wall Street, and on the right, you had the Tea Party. And those were the outgrowth of the 2008 crash. Are we going to see that again? A good point, especially, and again, on the idea of the dumping of stocks, there are instances when it's not nefarious, and part of the investigation is going to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. But it's a really strong point to think about what this new frontier looks like. The idea of if this happened, if the sort of the postmortem has been so easy to dissect and think about what happened, then deterrence maybe should have been more readily available and easier. Right. Well, I was on the. I was also on the Hill during 2007, 2008. Who wasn't and on the Hill? <laughs> Show of hands here. A lot of people. Yeah. I was a young lawyer. It was easier times. <laughs> the reason these banks acted recklessly is because they were incentivized to mm. act that way. Yes. They knew yeah. that they would be bailed out. And you know, th- the problem in Washington is that if when there's no loser, everybody loses in the economy. Mm. And we have too many people in D.C. who believe in tooth fairy economics. That if you lose something, money just magically shows up under your pillow and everything's okay. That's the name of your next book. That's the one. Yeah. But, but it's, it really gets down to this question of what is your theory of wealth creation? Is wealth the measure of what people value and will pay for things that are important to them, goods and services? Or is wealth defined by whatever government says it is, whatever government decides to print that year? And whenever we get away from wealth creation being anything other than what people value, we set ourselves on a very dangerous path, whether it's ESG and, and, and you know, the bank SVB, whatever, SB, whatever it's called. <laughs> they had an A rating for ESG. Well, that didn't help them very much. And I'm all for conservation, but I'm also all for wealth creation, that if you are creating wealth, then you're adding something. Then you have the foundation and the platform to talk about other things. But, but if you're not, and it's really, and what they did is they didn't manage risk well. That's the simple explanation. Well, we have to look at why that was. We have to say, what, what did the regulators fail to do? And I don't care whether they were working remotely, cared about social justice issues or not, you still have a job that you're supposed to be doing managing that managing wealth. Risk. Managing yeah. risk. And number three, as much as many of my Democrats don't want to talk about it, lightening up some of those restrictions in 2018, it appears, actually may have played a role. They should just be able to say, we made a mistake. I'm going to make one prediction of a phrase that is going to come back into the lexicon. It's old and and new again. Clawback. We are going to be talking about, because in addition to what you were saying about dumping stocks, they had enough money to give themselves some nice million-dollar bonuses Mm -hmm just as everything was going down the drain. So I do think we're going to hear about I think about this is a really great time, though, to talk about and have a really realistic and reasoned conversation about decentralized finance. And I know some people get really nervous, but I like cryptocurrency. I think it's important to talk about deep. I really do. And I think, you know, you have people on the Hill who are really big enemies of this. Senator Elizabeth Warren being one of those people. But we need to talk about things like Bitcoin being, you know, just not able to be able to withstand the pressures of inflation. I mean, this is this is a real conversation. Americans are thinking about the future of finance and these big banks being able to control everything and then having such deleterious effects on our everyday lives. And then again, bringing it all back to other things like housing and the housing shortage and the fact that we no longer talk about are we an ownership society or are we a society that's just going to rent forever? And then talking Mm -hmm. to millennials about that as well. Well, two things. One, Signature Bank, right, is known for its connection with cryptocurrency. It's one of the banks that had the failures in the last week. So I do wonder what the long-term effects of that. But I do wonder about, I mean, our conversation became very esoteric and not so much about the 
the minutia of this particular problem, which I think is exactly what might happen on the Hill. And the idea of if we are to broaden it in the way we're talking about, is that going to be a good or bad thing to actually solving the problem? Or will it become a conversation about how we view and value money more broadly? Well, I say, is that a problem that can be solved? You know, you said, is it all about just wealth creation? What's the old saying? Money makes the world go round. That's what builds up modern economies. It's the foundation of everything we have now. Is there a true institutional, is there a political solution to that? Or does this go to a larger cultural problem on how we value money and how we assess risk? You know, is that something that can be legislatively fixed? Or is that a cultural problem that isn't easily addressed through politics? Well, certainly one of the ways to address it, and this is something the president called for, asked Congress to do today, which is to create, you know, give the power to get the money back from those executives. That there, there should be more accountability among the executives and those who were in charge of managing that risk and who failed to do their jobs. Well, uh, her bracket will be clawbacks, everyone. That's March Madness, like, political brackets we've got right now. So everyone stick around, everybody. When we come back, they're calling it a David versus Goliath kind of lawsuit. Bucks County, Pennsylvania, suing some social media giants. And they're accusing them of triggering a mental health crisis among teenagers in the county. Do they have a shot? Bucks County, Pennsylvania is taking on social media. They're filing a lawsuit claiming that multiple companies contribute to rising mental health problems in kids. They're going after TikTok. They're going after Instagram. They're going after Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube, demanding accountability and unspecified financial damages for the rising costs of mental health services the county offers to young people. Here with you now to discuss is Joe Kahn, solicitor of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Joe, I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. You know, this has been called a kind of David versus Goliath sort of of case. You're going against some pretty huge social media giants, but you say it's worth it. Tell us why. Yeah, thanks for having me, Laura. And and I think you put it exactly right. It, It is worth it. And it's time for someone to step up. Um, these companies may be Goliaths, but someone needs to stand up for all of the parents and all the kids um, that have been suffering for so long. We are on the front lines of a mental health crisis that is impacting our youth more than anyone else. And we have for years been doing what we can to try and keep up. We've been providing uh, mental health services. We've been providing services to families. And this whole time, the taxpayer has been putting footing the bill the more we read about what these companies have been up to, how they've targeted our kids, uh, and uh, the more we realize we have the ability to do something about it, um, this is exactly the time for us to stand up on behalf of the people of Bucks County and demand better from these companies. And that's why we brought this lawsuit. In some respects, you've been comparing it to a kind of discussion on how people once viewed like, big tobacco, for example, or the idea of the impact it has on children, the idea of how it's marketed to, the idea of how we have shifted our perspective on marketing practices, on perhaps algorithms and the like. You draw this comparison. How is this being received in your community? Yeah, I think a lot of people get it. You know, for a long time, um, we've understood, and I should say at the beginning, I mean, I am the county solicitor of Bucks County, but more importantly, at first, I'm a dad. Um, I've got two boys who are eight and 11. 
Uh, they're exactly at that age where they've been, been getting curious about these platforms uh, because that's what their friends are doing. And we're all as parents struggling to try and limit screen time to to tell our kids how to navigate this 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 world that's very different than what we grew up in. Um, and now we're learning that these companies have been manipulating all of us, um, but especially our kids. And so there's a really powerful drug um, that's at the heart of this lawsuit. It's not Oxycontin. Uh, it's not tobacco. It's dopamine. Um, it's right in our own bodies. It's in the brains of our children. And this lawsuit is about how these algorithms, these IVRs, have been used and created to make money at the expense of our kids. You know, both Snapchat and Google have released statements in reaction to this lawsuit. Snapchat responding, saying, nothing is more important to us than the well-being of our community. We are constantly evaluating how we continue to make our platform safer, including through new education, features, and protections. Also, Google responding, saying, we have invested heavily in creating safe experiences for children across our platforms and have introduced strong protections and dedicated features to prioritize their well-being. What do you make of the idea of this introduction of strong protections? You talk about the dopamine effect, the idea that someone is having a bit of a Pavlovian response or they're excited by what they are seeing and it continues a cycle of wanting to do it again and again and again. Are there protections and regulations in place that are helping you to feel that the mental health of the children in your community is being considered? Well, I hope they're putting protections in place, but what the lawsuit talks about is a complete failure to do that and, in fact, profiting off of the fact that our kids were being exploited. Um, I really hope that these companies are serious um, when they say these things to the public. Uh, But first, we want to see what they're saying behind closed doors. We want the emails. We want the records. That's the kind of information that we're going to get because of this lawsuit when we go to the process um, that's known as discovery, when we get to demand those documents. And that's really what this lawsuit is. It's a demand that these companies do better. You know, when we took on the opioid companies, um, even before there was a settlement, even before there were there were even talks about it, um, some of those companies started to change their behavior. We saw Purdue Pharma starting on their own to stop marketing their opioids uh, to doctor's offices because of the pressure of that lawsuit. So this is going to be a long road ahead, uh, but it's an important first step. And we're really proud to lead this fight. We'll be following this lawsuit. Thank you so much. I suspect other counties in every city and state in the country is looking at this as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Our panel is back with us right now. I wonder what's your reaction to what we're hearing right now. We, we certainly have heard a lot about the effects of algorithms. We've heard from whistleblowers on Capitol Hill, for example, talking about social media and the impact on our young people, particularly our young people and particularly young girls, although increasingly so young boys. Um, the idea, though, that we as a nation are, on one hand, addicted to social media and the other that we are concerned about the well-being, this is a cost-benefit that's happening in this country right now. What do you say? So I'm a little torn. I say this partially as a parent with young children who I'm sure when, you know, when I left for uh, the studio tonight were probably sitting on YouTube at some point watching things on their tablets. This is not an easily solved issue through a piece of litigation. I think this is a worthwhile venture that they're taking. I think the discovery will be particularly illuminating in terms of how the algorithm is set up, the extent to which it's specifically targeting younger individuals, the extent to which that's being manipulated in violation of state laws. That's worthwhile to explore to make sure that that's not being abused. You think about the lawsuits against Big Tobacco back in the day and what came out of that wasn't that Big Tobacco went anywhere. It's still around. Cigarettes are still everywhere. 
but there was increased funds that had to be put towards education. There was more safety measures put in place to try to avoid it being sold to uh, minors. That's going to be what I think is truly what comes out of this is there's going to be greater uh, continued funding towards mental health and how younger individuals, particularly under 13, are able to access these social media platforms. There's going to be potentially greater reform in terms of how the algorithms are set up and overseen to ensure these social media companies don't abuse it and yeah. abuse that trust. And this is not alone. I mean, there, you also have Seattle Public Schools, who's been bringing a case against this, San Mateo County also looking at these issues. Um, but as you talked about, the illumination here. I mean, Big Tobacco, the internal memos, had their lobbyists who were once, you know, unbelievably unstoppable, on their back heels, trying to figure out how to explain the new PR problem. Increasingly so, we see this. What do you say? You know, I think this is an example also of where technology has gotten ahead of public policy and the law. And, you know, we joke about the age of Congress. Most of these folks are not people who are on tablets, <laughs> on their phones. I don't know if TikTok. they even know or on TikTok. Exactly. <laughs> well, they're even on TikTok, but are they even on, on Snapchat? <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, that's part of it as well. Where And I think the, and certainly the technology companies, some of these companies have manipulated that point, that fact, the fact that, and they kind of throw bones here and there to do a little bit of self-regulation, but they know. I mean, we've, we've heard from whistleblowers. We've heard from time to time that there was knowledge in, internally. And if you think about it, a teenager in particular is, you are the most vulnerable in terms of your sense of self. That's when you're trying to develop, I mean, from a developmental perspective, your sense of belonging. I mean, so it preys on some of the worst yeah. Parts of being a teenager, which I remember well, and it was miserable. Um, so I hope it does mean regulation, and I hope it means we get more educated about the impacts that social media is having on us. You, know, you talk about the pacing of technology. I also think about we as a nation, sadly, are still we, we are still catching up with what we know to be the right thing, which is to consider mental health. Mm -hmm. We value physical health. We focus on physical health far more right. than we look at mental health. And we're catching up slowly but surely. The numbers of members of, of the Senate in particular being very vocal about what they're experiencing from Tina Smith to John Fetterman, just to say the least. Um, but it's raising new questions about whether legislatively or litigiously, the mental health component might be an impediment. Yeah, look, I think we're, we're facing a challenge that is a once every 600-year challenge when you think about information technology. So this is bigger than, bigger than big tobacco because we haven't had a change in information technology like this since the printing press came on. Mm -hmm. And that disrupted all the centers of power, all, the literal monasteries of power back in that time. Mm -hmm. And one of those institutions is our parents, parents and families. So it's a challenge for everybody who has kids to, to handle this. And I think the litigation is part of the, is part of the answer because it does force transparency and mental health is part of it. But the bigger, the bigger issue is how do we rebuild social connection when this big technology revolution is undermining all those, all those connective relationships and those institutions? Yeah, you know, and there have to be guardrails in society. And I think this lawsuit sets that up outside the American family unit. And I really believe in individual responsibility. And that's why I've committed to not giving my kids smartphones until they're in eighth grade. I think that's really important. And then I'll, when I deem appropriate, they can have access to social media platforms. Uh, I myself in my early 20s endured a form of bullying on Facebook and deactivated my Facebook in the year 2011, never activated it since. And so this is deeply personal for me because as a woman in her, young, in her younger 20s went through 
through that, I know what this is doing to today's younger women. And those younger women right now who are on a downward spiral, going through anxiety and depression because of social media and what it's doing to their brains, they're going to be in the workforce really soon as young professionals. So what are we doing here in American society, allowing these people to go into workplaces with huge mental health issues? And where are the people that care? It's not these private companies. And look, I'm all for them innovating and earning more profits and, you know, pushing out new products for us to enjoy and be entertained by. But this isn't a funny thing anymore. This isn't entertainment anymore when our children are literally suffering. And, you know, as a mother of three daughters, I'm balancing the fact that I'm both excited and terrified by Web3. And it's not that there's this fear of the unknown. It's just that I know that as somebody who surfed Craigslist and went on MySpace and has real life friends from that from 20 years ago, I know that there's no stopping it in the way you could at a certain point when we were in the 90s. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by the lawsuit. I am. Thank you for sharing that. It's important we hear that story. Thank you so much, everyone. During the last few years, we've seen just how contentious community meetings can get sometimes so hostile that officials have tried to rein in the rancor. But in Massachusetts, the top court is upholding the right to be rude at public meetings. We'll talk about that next. But first, everyone, CNN's presentation of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher right after this. Well, now I want to turn it over to our friends at HBO, because each Friday after Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions and bring their unique perspectives to the topics that are driving the national conversation. We are thrilled to bring you this lively discussion first every Friday night. So here is Overtime with Bill Maher. Hello, CNN. It's me again, and I'm here with the panel we had today. Israeli actress and activist Noah Tishby, co-chair of the Forward Political Party Andrew Yang, and Michigan Congresswoman, soon-to-be Senator, Representative Alyssa Slotkin. Okay. Uh, should there be, the first question, very brief, should there be a primary for vice president? Oh. And we're going back to the beginning of the republic. When we were in, at the beginning, didn't, didn't the vice president wasn't a dude who ran with the guy, no, right? No, whoever was, came in second place. Second place, vice can vice you imagine? Vice yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we found today. Yeah. Uh, but I, I said during the show that I thought that there should be a competitive primary in the Democratic Party, which I do. But if Joe were to run again, I think there should be a primary for who his running mate should be because the, the fact is that person could wind up stepping into his shoes and the people should have a say. You down with that? No. I have, you don't care. It's not going to happen. I care. So, yeah, right. It's not going to happen. Why, right. why waste political capital? I don't, I don't think it should be primary for, because I think that is, as a candidate, that's your first choice as a possible president, and that shows a lot. Yeah. So you're with Thank him, you. or yeah, yeah? No, I don't. I don't oh, think oh. so. It's the first choice of, a, of an upcoming president. Uh, okay. What does the panel think of the new upgrades to Chat GPT? Oh, you must have many. <laughs> now this is not just Chat GPT is very recent itself, mm -hmm. and now they found a way to make something that we all find creepy even creepier. <laughs> is there any benefit to this technology getting more advanced? Uh, well, it can write college essays in about 30 seconds, so if that's too slow for you, then you can just turn it up and then <laughs> they can get it done in, in 10 or 15 seconds. Um, in all seriousness, I have friends who run firms and they're saying to me in private, look, uh, I'm going to let go of 40% of my staff because I can now get more done with fewer people. 
That's happening to a lot of repetitive white-collar jobs. 44% of U.S. jobs are either repetitive manual or repetitive cognitive. And it turns out the repetitive cognitive might be the first to go. Yeah, but this is also at a moment when we cannot get enough people to work in the jobs that we have. So while we may be trending in that direction, we have a massive problem getting our current jobs filled. So I, I don't feel like we're oh, on no, the cusp. You're, you're right, Alyssa. They're both happening at the same time. The fact is the labor force has shrunken by two and a half million American workers post-COVID. Now they're at home. We're trying to get them back into the workforce. And then simultaneously, this tech's going to come in and wipe out. Let's say, as one example, two million Americans work in call centers right now, making 17 bucks an hour. Like, how long do you think that'll last? I, I don't know. You're the expert. People know that. I that, can't that answer job, these questions. You know, that, that job right. is, is probably right. you know, automatable today. I, I just read the questions. Um, <laughs> was the online criticism of musician Tem's extravagant Oscar dress, which obstructed the view of audience... Oh, I saw that picture. Which obstructed the view of audience members fair. If you didn't see this, yes, uh, somebody had on a big white ruffled thing, and the people, they're all like... Five people behind her were like, <laughs> the Oscars, uh, what do you think? I feel like the actress should probably answer that. Ah, yeah, 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 I haven't acted in years. Listen, it was a little extreme, <laughs> but I don't think it calls for an overtime question. There are bigger things in life that we can deal with right now. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it was not right. <laughs> If somebody sits and purposely wears something, they know you're going to be in an audience and you, you know there could be people behind you. It should, I think it should we don't have been think collapsible. About our... Like, she should have been able to right. do what she wants you when she comes on the carpet like and then peacocks. collapse that thing down and put it in the whole, That's whole, whole thing. That's what she needs it's to do. My sense is also my sense is also the stylist knew that we'll be talking about it. So well, that was it was intentional. Well, we are talking about her dress. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, again. You I, fell into I, the trap. I, 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 I'm just reading. That's the this is what this game show is. I just read the questions from the people. It's so interesting to know what the people are thinking of. Give them what they want. Right. And that is important. Noah can yeah. this is for you. How can people distinguish between legitimate criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism? Oh. Good, good question. Great question. Yeah. Great question. Um, okay, so uh, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. First of all, let's get that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll tell you what the difference is. There's nothing wrong with criticizing Israeli government. I just did that on the show. I think that the overhaul, the judiciary overhaul, is extreme. So it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with criticizing Israeli government's policies, politicians, West Bank, whatever it is that you want. If you have... Uh, something against, if you're trying to dismantle the Jewish state, if you're trying to go against the, the existence of the state of Israel, that's where the line is drawn. And sadly, there are a lot of people that are criticizing Israel, and that's totally fine, but there are a lot of people that are saying that Israel is not a legitimate country. And that is unacceptable. Okay. You agree? Yeah, I mean, on the other side of the coin, I don't think it's anti-Semitism if you care deeply about the state of the Palestinian affairs. I mean, if you care about people, that's not anti-Semitism. If you care, no. I mean, and I think that sometimes people go too far and they say any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. Every concern about the Palestinians is anti-Semitism, and that's also BS. A hundred percent. Politicians, they're so political. <laughs> Utah Governor Spencer Cox will sign a bill that bans abortion clinics across the state by the end of the year. Is abortion under threat nationwide? Well, duh. Um, I mean... Yes. <laughs> I'm going to say big yes. But this is, so this is actually closing... Yeah, I mean, well, and also this week I see there's a federal judge in Texas 
who is looking to somehow rig it so that you can't get the abortion pill. Medication, yeah. Uh, the, uh, not just in Texas, but... Uh, nationwide. nationwide. I, I don't court. even understand how that would work, but the fact that they're trying it is a little scary. Yeah, I, I just, I think we should all be very, very clear that the right to have an abortion in the United States is deeply, deeply under threat. They overturned Roe already, right. and already in 32 states in the, in the country, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to get an abortion. And the constant onslaught, now on medication, so that even in a state like Michigan, where we voted as a as a state to allow abortion to continue under Roe standards, it's going to potentially threaten our ability for a CVS or a Walgreens or whatever to prescribe the medication that many, many women use safely prescribed by their doctor. It is deeply disturbing and everyone should be involved in this if you care about this issue. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say when you talk to people who are... Uh... I mean, there's a lot of those. We mentioned it in the editorial that there's something like 25% of Democrats are still pro My district is pro-life. Yeah. Your district is pro-life. Yeah, my district is pro-life. I mean, and this is how you know the country has shifted and people are thinking differently, particularly pro-life women. They will pull me aside in an event and say, look, I'm pro-life. I, 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 I'm deeply Catholic or this is something I feel in my faith. Right. I could never have an abortion. I could never advise my children to have an abortion but I've never walked in another woman's shoes and I would never tell her how to live her life. And that is all we are asking for. That is all we are asking for. The vast majority of Americans actually can find common ground, uh, even outside of their own personal beliefs. It's our dysfunctional political system that is whipsawing us toward one extreme or the other. On this one, it's having terrible consequences around the country for women's reproductive rights. By the way, uh, in Israel, abortion is paid for by the government. Yeah. Just saying. Before by the government and a religious state. And religious, well, religious state. according to religious, religious religion believes in Judaism, life begins in first breath. Right. Whether you're into it or not, into religion or not. Yeah. But yeah, so in Israel it's... I'm into yeah. breath. <laughs> uh, I, I get that part. Uh, uh, what, what does the panel think of YouTube lifting its ban on Donald Trump? Oh, hmm. no. Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's really the, no, I mean, he, so um, he's been allowed back on Meta and Twitter and hasn't taken advantage yet because he's trying to prop up Truth Social. But I, I think that's going to change. I think he's going to arrive on all of these platforms and we'll all be collectively a little bit dumber for it. <laughs> so you would ban him? You ban him? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, it's difficult because if you're a social media platform, you're like, wait a minute. He, he's right now the putative frontrunner of one of the two major parties. Uh, so, uh, you know, banning him might consist of actually, you know, like taking away someone's political speech. And, and that's, that's the bind that these companies exactly. are Exactly. Can, can I just say, though, there's a really interesting Supreme Court case that's being heard right now that's mm-hmm. going to be decided on whether social media companies can be held accountable for extreme content that appears on their sites. And it's actually not about whether Donald Trump or anyone else gets on Facebook or gets on anywhere and says these extreme things. It's whether they have designed algorithms to monetize hate where they know that that stuff is clickbait. They know that extreme content gets more views, more likes, more advertising dollars. So they're monetizing the spread of extremism. That is what the Supreme Court case is about. I don't know which way they're going to go, but I think it's a super interesting case for the future of technology. Who is responsible? They shouldn't be making money off of extreme content. They can't control Donald Trump, but they can control how they make their money. All right. We'll have to end it there. I don't want to have CNN late on their next commercial break. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.
Well, you can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 1130. We'll be right back. And thanks to Bill, we're not late for our next commercial break. I see you. The right to be rude, rude, at a public meeting in Massachusetts has now been upheld by the state's Supreme Judicial Court. The New York Times reports the court ruled that the town of Southborough's civility code for public comment at meetings is unconstitutional. A resident sued after being threatened with removal from a town board meeting for directing strong language at a board member. Listen to this exchange. It's not easy to be um, volunteers in town. But breaking the law is breaking the law. So, ma'am, if you want to slander town officials who are doing their very best, um, then then we're going to go ahead and stop the public comment session now. Look, you need to stop being a Hitler. You're a Hitler. All right, we are moving into into recess. Thank you. The attorney for Southborough criticized the court's decision, saying it effectively warns local officials against enforcing even modest rules of order and decorum at public meetings. Back with me now, John Hart, Karen Finney, Bradley Moss, and Rena Shaw. I mean, the idea of alleging or calling someone Hitler-esque in any capacity, very strong words. But then you have the First Amendment concern she seemed to have raised. What do you say? I say that, by and large, the court got it right. First Amendment gives you a lot of protections. One of them is the right to be a jerk, for lack of a better expression, including in the public square. Look, she wasn't being disruptive. She wasn't being violent. She wasn't hurling expletives at them. She made a really stupid comment, and she's just like every other local crank that everyone sees at local town halls all the time. They run their mouth. They go back to whatever they were doing, and the officials go back to doing their business, which is what they really should have done here. You can't enforce some you-will-be-polite-at-all-times code. I'm sorry. In politics, in, in Congress, right, and in courtrooms, we have well, civility and decorum. You know, there's order in the well, courts where the motions happen. But that, sorry, but that's what he should have done. I would have just, you know, that's what the gavel is for, brother. Like, she's mm-hmm. out of order. Or just say, we've hurt, you've been hurt. Yeah. Like, there are other ways to handle it. I think the issue here, though, is it's one thing freedom of speech, but what we know is that, to my mind, goes all the way up to when it becomes inciting violence, where we end up with January 6th or like the attack on Paul Pelosi. That was not what this was. So I agree. First Amendment. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, the First Amendment trumps niceness. That's that's the virtue that the founders wanted to protect. But there's good conflict and bad conflict. We know what bad conflict is, but we we need good conflict in our political system. We need the collision of ideas because that produces the building blocks of solutions, just as like in a super collider, you have these particles hit each other that reveal the building blocks of matter. We need to have that conflict because that, that's what helps us compromise and come to these peaceful solutions. I nodded along with that description because I wanted to seem very smart about science. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're a society desperately in need of more civility. I think that's it, bottom line. But if we can't, inf- and if we can't enforce certain rules around behavior, then I think we're no better than the pack of animals in the movie The Lion King. And I just think about that because behavior, right? Tone and how people present themselves in certain public forums, it's important. Then I look at the ruling from the Massachusetts Supreme Court, and I think they got it both right and wrong because I care about free speech. I think we need to protect free speech. But also, calling somebody a Hitler, there's a game of telephone played in a town. You know, it makes its way around. Isn't that slanderous on one hand, too? So I think, in in essence, yeah, I'm I'm happy that they're like, look, let free speech be free speech. Somebody should behave how they want. But I am deeply concerned about certain language and behavior leading to political violence because we do live in that era where it goes quickly. What do you say about the slander comment? (sighs) 
it's, it wasn't slander. It's, it wasn't. It's, a, it's a disgusting, stupid it's opinion. It's a horrible argument, yeah. which is what she was. She's a local mm. crank. You're allowed to be like the local crank. Hitler. Yeah. I'm Jewish. Just it didn't offend me. You can call me whatever you want. It doesn't do anything. Face right but, off. Yeah, but slander is essentially saying something that's untruthful to yeah. diminish reputation in the community. It's, mm. it's an opinionated, argumentative comment. It would go nowhere in a court of law, which is also part of why it went this way. If you looked at the ruling, if you look, uh, there's a very lengthy Supreme Court ruling out of Massachusetts on this one. It's most of the regs were upheld in terms of what they put in place. It was this specific part that was just so overly broad. They said it's just going too far. You know, we look at this and think about not only the anonymity um, of social media and what is happening on those wavelengths all the time, but also not in the vacuum, right? We see what happens in school board meetings, in public hearings across this country for a whole host of issues. We'll see what happens next, everyone, in those instances. We'll be right back in just a moment. Nearly 30 years after a civil war in Guatemala, the country is still struggling. The father of tonight, CNN hero, was killed during the conflict, and she has turned that pain into purpose. Los niños llegaban a la biblioteca a buscar cómo hacer las tareas porque en casa no tenían los recursos. Los papás no saben leer. Hi, my name is... Empezaron a llegar con este deseo de superación. Luego empecé a darme cuenta que habían más obstáculos que les impiden a ellos estudiar. Proveemos de oportunidades de educación y de las herramientas para que ellos eh, puedan romper con el círculo de la pobreza. Ya tenemos niños que dicen que quieren ser ingenieros o que quieren ser químicos. Somos cientos de personas involucradas. Le damos a las personas amor, respeto y dignidad. Head to CNNHeroes.com to nominate your hero. Everyone, thanks for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.